All right, let's open up to chapter four. And some of the scripture verses have uh, already been read during uh, our last part of this class. Um, they came up in chapter three, but we will be reviewing them just so you know. And the one that chapter four starts with is Luke 10, and it's uh, verse 19, but I'm going to read 20 as well. Um, and it's that verse. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be uh, or by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What's cool about this, you guys, is that this is not the original commission that the disciples are given in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, 9, that's where their original commission is given for this segment of their journey. And at that point, Jesus tells them to heal the sick um, and, they say, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So that's the, that's the message that he sends them out with at that point in the, this part of the ministry. Now, in Luke 9, that's where Jesus tells them, uh, gathers the 12 together and gives them power and authority over the demons and to cure the diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom and to heal uh, uh, the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. But again, in Luke 10, this is like an extra blessing. The, the, the 120, are, uh, they come back and they're like, this is amazing. The demons submit to us in your name. That's not the original commission to go out, but that's just one of the, the benefits of doing ministry. But this is uh, the text for chapter four as well. But I also want to note, this is pre-Calvary, and Pastor Phil read, read the post-Calvary verse, is what I'd say, which is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when Jesus says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus, before Calvary, before he went to the cross, he was giving his disciples, so therefore us, he was giving us that authority. And then post-cross as well, post-resurrection, he's saying, look, now all authority and all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, so go. And what's so great is that Jesus, it's the same power that raised him from the dead that's alive in us, and that's the same power that we're walking out now as we are sent into the world. We're going with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So, read uh, with me on page 58, the second, or the first full paragraph. Uh, it says, this is the church's Magna Carta in her conflict with Satan. Here is a clear, clear legal basis for deliverance from Satan's bondage and oppression and for offensive action in the conflict with him. It is clear from this and other passages that God intends the true church, not Satan, to be the controlling factor in human affairs. We talked a little bit about that last week as well, but how, uh, how man for a long time did not know this, that they did not know that this was their rightful place in the universe because of the fall, but Jesus comes and he reinstates that, giving us that authority. What Bilheimer then goes into is a talk about this organic unity that we have with Christ being a part of the body. It's this, uh, this idea that it's, um, while it is definitely symbolic in nature, there's something very real about that, that Christ is the head of the church and that we are literally the manifestation of him on the, on the earth. He's the one who directs us and leads us and tells us where to go, what to do, what to say. He's the one who empowers us with all those things as well. Um, but we get to do that. And I know that um, some of you have shared with me that you don't, 
necessarily agree with everything that Bill Heimer writes in this book, and that's okay. I just want to let you know that's okay. You don't have to agree and say amen to every single word. I don't even agree with every single word. But what Bill Heimer is trying to get at is good stuff because what he's really trying to communicate is the importance and the significance of prayer and our call as Christians unto prayer for the sake of salvation for other people, other believers. That's really the, the main, the main uh, driving thing that he's trying to communicate in this chapter, and that comes through the authority, like we were talking about last week, that comes from being in Christ, okay? So this idea of organic unity, uh, being in Christ, being a part of his body, is still being play, played out here, teased out in this chapter. And he, he goes into talking about how Adam, he doesn't use this verbiage, but how Adam is really a type of Christ, um, he, an anti-type is the, the correct terminology. But um, there are some certain parallels here that we see that he highlights between Adam um, having a bride and Jesus having a bride, the church. So read with me on page 59, the end of that first line says, So Adam was sent into a deep sleep, and from a wound in his side a portion of his own body was taken, and for him was made a suitable helper. Jumping down a little bit to the second paragraph, about halfway through, like the first Adam, he, being Jesus, too, was sent into a deep sleep of death and resurrection. Out of his wounded side, the church, through faith, is born of God as the bride of Christ. Again, so we are members of his body, then we see this imagery of being the bride of Christ. We have this very unique, very special role in creation uh, and, and in the universe to carry out what God has willed and planned for mankind. That's what we're seeing here. And this comes out of this idea that, that he's talking about here is Genesis two eighteen through 24, which says, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone, so I will make a helper for him who is comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to the cattle and the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not, a founder, was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. As he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Ephesians 5 talks about this too. In fact, it uses some of the exact same language. So we're going to read Ephesians 5 starting in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of, of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, he, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and here it is, flesh of his, uh, flesh, of his flesh and bones of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but, I'm speak, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So moving on out of that, um, 
go down uh, to the last paragraph on page 59 with me. The second sentence here, if Christ has been exalted as a supreme authority in the universe and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, wielding all of the authority of the Godhead both in heaven and on earth, and if the church as his body is organically united with him as, his, as the head, where does that place the church? Can it be elsewhere except on the throne? And he starts to talk about what Ephesians 2 says about this. So starting in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And um, last week we talked a little bit about this idea, it was brought up in a question of, uh, can't God do everything? Does he... Does he need us? Does he use us? That's part of what chapter 3 was talking about. And what we talked about then is this idea that that God chooses to use us. And technically, God could do anything that he needs. He doesn't need us, right? Uh, Anything that he wants to do apart from us. But he chooses to do that. In Philippians 2, what we see is that Jesus chooses to limit himself by taking on flesh. He takes on humanity. He chooses to limit himself. And so in doing so, he becomes like us. He becomes feeble. He becomes um, limited in where he can go, what he can do. And this is for the sake of his humility and also his glorification. And so God, he does choose to limit himself by asking us to partner with him in prayer. And what this chapter, again, is talking about, this idea of praying for people and for their salvation. And so he invites us into that process of other people being saved. On the break, Jack and I were talking, though, and he brought up this, this quote from uh, Esther, where Mordecai says to Esther, you need to go to the king on behalf of the Jews and you need to ask him not to destroy the Jews. And if you don't do it, God's going to raise up somebody else who will. And so as we talk about this idea of going and praying for people, it's following, it's, it's in, in, in line with the commandment that Jesus gives his disciples to pray for the people to be sent out into the harvest field. But the thing is, is that we can miss out on sharing in God's glory if we are not obedient to do this. If we don't open our mouths and begin to pray and begin to labor in prayer, interceding on behalf of everybody around us who's dying, then we don't get to share in the glory of God when he does save because he will raise up somebody else who will do that. Um, There's this idea as well, though, that I want to talk about where as the church, because what Bilheimer gets into is this idea that the church is really like this moral driving force in, in the world today and that if it wasn't for the church that the whole world would go to hell, and I believe that's true. But one thing I want to note is that by going into the world, that doesn't necessarily look like taking over the world. And by that, I don't mean that, what I mean is that that doesn't look like establishing a Christian nation. So I don't want these ideas to be confused for us that, okay, well then, um, what we need to do is actually create a country of our own that's only Christians and then go out and dominate everybody else because that's not what God has in mind for the church. While First Peter 2.9 says that we are a, a, a holy nation, he's not talking about something like the United States. 
Um, he calls us a royal priesthood, a special people, but the church exceeds, it goes beyond, far beyond uh, nationality, right? And that's part of the beauty of heaven is that it creates this environment of worship where all tongues, tribes, nations, everybody is represented. It's not just a single nationality, but the, but the church is the, the uh, kingdom of God all throughout the world. And so it's not necessarily taking over the world, but infiltrating the world. I think about the entertainment industry, for example. And um, we should pray for the entertainment industry. But what some people pray is, God, destroy Hollywood because it's full of sin. And uh, that's the wrong type of prayer. Um, What we want to pray is, first off, that the people in Hollywood are saved, right? Um, I even think about um, what a lot of people will say when terrorist action takes place in the world. A lot of people are like, Good, I hope that they die. I hope that they find them and they kill them when they go out on missions to like hunt down these terrorists. And for me, I, I ask the question, well, shouldn't we be praying that these terrorists would have a change of heart, that they would get to know Jesus, that they would be saved? Because if they die in their sin, then they're going to be going to hell. And brothers and sisters, we need to be interceding for even terrorists so that they don't have that happen to them. I think about the story of Jonah. And Jonah is sent to Nineveh. And Nineveh, to the Jews would be the equivalent of um, uh, ISIS to us today. Um, in fact, Islam would be the equivalent to, uh, or, or sorry, Nineveh would be the equivalent to Islam for the Jews today as well. And so in the story of, of Jonah, what we see is that God is sending Jonah to the very people who are just trying and, and are ultimately, you know, going to um, lead his people into captivity, into exile, But he tells Jonah to go to those people. That would be like God telling us to go to ISIS and to tell them to repent of their sin um, so that God's wrath wouldn't fall upon them. That's pretty extreme if we think about it in those terms. It it would be pretty extreme for the Jews today to go to to Islam, to the Muslims, and to say the same thing. But that's the equivalent that we're dealing with here. And instead of hoping that these people are destroyed and that they die and that, that that would be their justice and that they would die in their sin, we should be praying for repentance for them, that their hearts would be changed. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing if God stopped ISIS because they all converted to Christianity? Yeah. There's a lot of debate as to the origin of morality in our culture today. I was in a philosophy class my, oh man, I think it was my freshman year of college, and I wish I knew then what I know now in terms of arguing and apologetics and stuff. But on the very first day of class, the professor said, uh, you know, where does your source of morality come from? And he was a stout atheist. He was, I think, out to probably just shut up the Christians in the class uh, and to embarrass them on the very first day to discourage them from ever speaking again. One of those kind of guys. And so me being a good little Christian kid, oh, my morality comes from the Bible. And uh, immediately he asked this question back to me. So tell me then, is it ethical to kill? And I, of course, the first thing I go to is murder. And so I say no. And he goes, oh, really? So, so King David in his uh, campaigns, he was a sinner then. And I was stumped. I didn't know what to say back. And, and so... Um, what we continue to discuss was actually a business ethics class. What we continue to discuss is where does morality really come from? There's morality in a lot of other religions. But what we also see in Genesis is that the world apart from God 
is, is chaotic. And that's why when God looks on, uh, looks on the world at the time of Noah, he's, he's grieved. It says that God is actually grieved that he made mankind because of how corrupt they've become. And so he floods the world, he destroys it. And in his grace, he makes a covenant that he's not going to do that again. But then you look a little bit later on, and I, I, think, about, I think about the gladiators in Rome. And I think about that form of entertainment and how disgusting it is to us. Um, and I think about the idolatry that happened at that time and the sexual morality at that time. I, I think about these things, and, and it hits me, though, at the same time that it wasn't that they were not religious and so they were doing these things. It's actually that sometimes religion encourages this behavior, things like temple prostitution, and it's, so it's interesting, and that's why I said earlier, I do believe that the world apart from God is going to go to hell. I think that if we were to take God out of any kind of economy, then that's what we would see. And some religions might add some good value to the society in which they, they are functioning, but their religion, because it's not complete, because they don't have the full truth, that's going to be so limited in, in its capacity to really, uh, to really see full morality unfold in the world. And so we do need God and the God of the Bible, more specifically, um, inspiring us as Christians to be a moral compass for our world. And so go to page 61 with me. He says uh, in the first paragraph there, under civilization, all blessings of peace and tranquility without which there can be no stable social order and no civilization as we know it are the result of the gospel. The gospel is called the gospel of peace. About halfway through, without the knowledge of and reverence for God, there can be no orderly and efficient functioning of government. And then jumping down there to uh, the church wields the balance of power. It says, from the womb of the gospel then are born all principles, standards, and qualities of character that form the foundation of all moral, spiritual, social, and political well-being. The church is the trustee and steward of that gospel. Turn over to the next page, 62. And about three-quarters of the way down in the giant paragraph there, next to praise ye the Lord. If it were not for the church, Satan would have already churned this earth into hell. I think, I think that these are such good, uh, good lines to pull out because I know that there would be a lot of people who would push back, especially in our world today. If it wasn't for Judeo-Christian teachings, um, I do believe that our world would be uh, very hellish. I think, that, I think that America would be very hellish if we didn't have that. I think actually um, the Western world would be very hellish. And I think too about the, the cultures that we interact with, more of these Eastern cultures, and I think about the fact that their um, religions are so demonic, and that's a huge part of things as well. Again, I'm thinking through the, the lens in the context of South Africa, but you have these different religions there, and we can see the same thing in, uh, throughout Asia, really. But you have these different religions there, and they think that they're worshiping something real. And, and they truly are, and it's, but it's a demon. They think that they're worshiping something benevolent, something good. And they don't realize that if they're praying to someone other than, than God, than the Trinity, that they're praying to a demon and they're having these real, very real experiences, very real interactions um, with the spiritual, but it's a demonic kind of presence. And so I, I do believe that it's essential that 
the church is is interceding on behalf of the world in terms of morality as well. On page 63, there's a quote from Daniel Webster, and he says, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering uh, and to prosper. But if we or our posterity neglect his instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's where we find the blessings and curses of Israel. So while these are specific to Israel, there's an application, I believe, to the world and to the church more specifically today. But what we see there is that, to give you a little bit of context biblically, Deuteronomy is the second reading of the law. So that means that the first generation who came out of, uh, out of Egypt from the, ex, uh, from the Exodus, that all of those people have now died off because of their apostasy, because they worshiped idols while they were in the wilderness. Um, they have all died off. And so now there needs to be a second reading of the law to the new generation who's about to, literally about to enter into the land, uh, the promised land. And so there's a second reading of the law, and after, after uh, Moses gets through the reading of the law, it's, there's a section on blessings and curses. And it starts with the blessings, and essentially what it says there is if you do these things, if you keep the Lord's covenants and his commandments and his statutes and all these things, the, the principles that God has instructed you to keep, then there's going to be blessing. There's going to be blessing in your womb. There's going to be blessing in your crops and your livestock. And he just kind of goes through this list, and he says basically every... every um, Every uh, facility or faculty, rather, in your life is going to be blessed if you keep my commandments. But then he, he does the flip-flop as well. And he says, if you don't keep my commandments, all these things are also going to be cursed. So it's this idea of choosing life or choosing death, literally. What will you choose? Will you choose the blessings? Will you choose the, uh, the crops to be blessed? Uh, your womb to be blessed? Your livestock to be blessed? Or will you choose for these things to die? And... Um, the idea here being, if you practice what God says is, is good, moral, um, healthy, right, what's righteous, then there's blessings for that. And if you don't, then the consequence of that is that there's, there's curses that will come. And I think about, especially because we've been developing this curriculum for our small groups, I think about Cain and Abel and the story there. And what's so interesting to me is that here, uh, Cain takes his brother Abel, the righteous one. Cain takes Abel into the fields. Now, Cain's a farmer. He takes him into the fields from which he brought in this sacrifice that God didn't see as, uh, as acceptable because it wasn't a first fruits offering. He takes him into that same field. That's where he kills him. And the, the, the blood of his brother, the blood of the righteous, is then absorbed into the ground where these crops are. Cain's own crops. And consequently, the, the curse that Cain receives for killing his brother is, hey, your fields that you've labored over to produce crops, well, now guess what? They've drank in death, and so they're going to produce death for you. Literally, you just sowed death into your land, the blood of your brother, and so you're going to reap death. These crops are not going to be alive for you. And so throughout Scripture, we see this idea of blessing and curses that come through righteousness or through disobedience. And the same, I think, is true for us today. I believe that it is. Um, in our world today, we have to continue to stand for righteousness, and that's part of what the church is intended to do. And so we have to then intercede on, on behalf of our world. 
And we have to also interject our right, the Lord's righteousness into what is happening in the world today. And uh, like this quote that we just read, there's blessing that comes with that. There's blessing for the country in which we live. There's blessing for us in our households and our families and our churches. There's blessing for the world at large. And so we are called to that. Now, one thing that's a little bit difficult in our society today in America is postmodernism and then classical liberalism. At the extreme forms of these, the extreme form of classical liberalism says, do whatever you want so long as it doesn't infringe on somebody else's ability to do whatever they want. So the check and ba- checks and balance system there is, well, you can't murder because if you murder somebody, then you're going to violate their ability to do what they want. So do what you want so as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. Now, postmodernism takes that to the next level. And again, this is the extreme form of postmodernism. But the extreme form of postmodernism says, do whatever you want and do it to the best of your ability. And if you're not doing what you want, then you're not being completely moral. In fact, they see Christians as an enemy to freedom. They see Christians as because there's morality that, that Christians take from Scripture, they see us as the enemy because we are infringing upon their ability to do whatever they want. But postmodernism, again, at, at its extreme form, would say, if you want to be a murderer, then go be a murderer and do it very well. If you want to rape people, then go and rape people and do that very well. If you want to be a thief, then go and rob people and do it very well. And that's the teaching at the core, at the extreme core of postmodernism, that's the teaching. And our culture, especially in the West, continues to embrace this. And I just wonder, if you were to remove the church, if you were to remove scripture from our society, who would be the voice of reason behind that to, to counter that? And so the church does need to, we need to continue to speak up and to intercede on behalf of our, of our world. There's a movie called The Purge. I haven't actually seen it. Um, the plot is quite interesting, though, and, and it kind of gives us this picture of what, might, uh, what the world might look like if you were to remove Christianity and Scripture from it. Here's the, uh, the plot summary from Universal Pictures. They write, in an America racked by crime and overcrowded prisons, the government has sanctioned an annual 12-hour period in which any and all crime activity, including murder, becomes legal. The police can't be called. Hospitals suspend help. It's one night when the citizenry regulates itself without thought of punishment. On this night plagued by violence and an epidemic of crime, one family wrestles with the decision of who they'll become when a stranger comes knocking. And that is the, uh, I think, probably a good picture, an interesting picture, but a good picture of what the world would look like apart from Christ and apart from his church interceding on its behalf. Now, for the next part of the book, we have to talk a little bit about this idea of soteriology, and soteriology is the study of salvation. Because what Billheimer is getting at here is the church's responsibility and the church's role in interceding on behalf of the, uh, of the world for their salvation. So let's go to page 64, and um, this is a, one of the ways that he begins this. It's with this idea in the second uh, section there, or sorry, the first section, we're not all of us rebels. The third sentence, we're not all of us born with our backs against God. Did we not all, like Adam, run and hide from God? Did we not all mightily resist the wooing of God's spirit before we were saved? And did we not all continue to resist that wooing until it became so persuasive and compelling that it finally became easier to yield than to continue in rebellion? Now what God does is he, uh, he woos us by his spirit. 
What John, or Jesus says in John 6:44 is, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day." And God does that through His Spirit. He pursues us with His or through His Spirit, um, and that's His that's His way of wooing us, right? And so when when Jesus asks Peter and the other disciples, "Who do people say I am?" and then "Who do you say I am?" and Peter says, "You're the Christ," he says, "That was revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven." There's something about being able to testify to who Christ is that for us that only comes through the Father. It only comes through his spirit. And what we also know about God is what 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Bilheimer quotes that passage as well because it tells us that what, what God's heart is for humanity is that all people would be saved. I want to throw us back to the last chapter on page 52 really quick because there's this quote at the end of the, uh, the middle paragraph there, and it says, The content of all true prayer originates in the heart of God. So it is he who inspires the prayer in the heart of the human beings, and the answer to, to, uh, and the answer to every God-inspired petition is already prepared before the prayer is uttered. When we are convinced of this, then faith for the answer is easy, far easier than it would be otherwise. So we know that God's will is that all people would be saved. So when we as the church begin to pray for the world, we begin to pray for their salvation, we are doing that in agreement with God. And what Bilheimer is pointing out here is that all true prayer is that which is already God's desire. It's simply us becoming aware of the Lord's desire and then praying for that thing. And so we're partnering with God. We're saying, God, I see that that's what your will is for, the, for humanity. God desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, God, I agree with you. And so now I'm going to take time. I'm going to labor in prayer and agreeance with you for the sake of the world then. In 1 John 2, 2, it says that he himself being Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. So Christ's sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice, his propitiation, it was enough to remove the, the, the sins of the entire world, but it is limited to those who believe. What John 3.16, we all know that verse, but what that tells us is that whoever believes. Whoever believes has eternal life. So it's not just that Jesus, though his sacrifice is fully sufficient, it's not just that everybody then gets a get-out-of-jail-free get card, but those who believe. And so those who believe are the ones who experience God's grace even though Christ's sacrifice is fully sufficient. So we kind of just blazed through that. Let me see if there's any other verse or uh, things here I want to draw out because we want to save some time for questions at the end here. Um, let's go to page 65. So very top of the page. This then means that no soul is saved apart from intercession, and that every soul who is saved is saved because someone who would not give him up to Satan prayed. Jump down a little bit more with me to uh, the first paragraph under the Spirit and the Bride, second sentence. God will not go over the head of his church even to save a soul without her cooperation. If she will not intercede, the Holy Spirit by his own cannot choose, uh, by his own choice cannot do the work of convicting and persuading. And then turn to the next page. I'm bl- just going through these for a reason. Um, the very first sentence, this being so, then the church, not Satan, holds the balance of power, 
not only in the world of affairs, but in the salvation of the individual soul. Now, I want to note that what Bilheimer says in his, I think it's his second end note, is that he's not suggesting that the salvation of a person is, a, is apart from their own choosing. What he's trying to get at here is that the church needs to labor in prayer, but that each individual is responsible um, ultimately for that decision. Now, the reason I just kind of read these and, and blazed through them is because I wanted to talk about how what we see um, and probably what some of your concerns are with this chapter, um, what, is, what is limiting about Bilheimer's argument and then what the strengths are, okay? And so the first thing that I thought of uh, that maybe you did too as you're reading through it is that prayer is a work. Um, so what, what Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says is that salvation comes through, uh, through grace by, or by grace through faith and uh, not of works so that anyone should have the ability to boast, right? So Bilheimer's argument is slightly threatened by the idea of, well, if it's, if it's the prayers of the church that works to save a person, then that's works, and that's apart from Christ, and that's not grace. So that's one thing that, that somebody might be able to suggest about Bilheimer's argument. Um, what about those who we pray for and still don't believe, right? You might have labored in prayer for somebody, and on their deathbed, they still were not willing to repent. Now, we don't know what happens in those last moments, and praise God that he is just and good and gracious, um, but what about those people? And another argument might be, well, what about those like Muslims who convert through dreams, um, or maybe even those who are on a abandoned island somewhere in the middle of the Pacific and no missionary has ever gone to them, unreached people groups. What about those people? What about people who we don't even know exist? What if nobody's praying for them and yet there still is this, this revelation of the gospel? Now, what's, what I think is uh, some of the strengths of Bilheimer's argument is that Jesus, I already said this, but Jesus tells his disciples to pray for the harvesters, that they would be sent out in Matthew 9, 38. And so what's good about this argument is that Bilheimer is saying, now I'm just, what Bilheimer is doing is agreeing with Jesus and saying, church, you need to go and start praying for people to be saved. Part of that can even be praying that people are sent out to the harvest fields because uh, the harvest is ripe. Um, another good thing is that we ought to pray for the lost. There's no reason not to. We need to be praying for people who are not yet saved. And perhaps the strongest argument I would say for Bill Heimer is there's no place in Scripture where we can't guess or see the direct effects of somebody's prayer um, for the salvation of somebody, especially in the New Testament. The argument that he gives for Paul, um, I think that the church probably was praying for Paul. And I think that if we were to, to think through our own stories and to think through the stories of those that we know that are uh, believers in Jesus, there was probably somebody who was laboring in prayer on their behalf. Even that idea of, well, what about the Muslims who converted to Christianity because they had a dream? There was probably a missionary who was praying on behalf and interceding on behalf of that village or on behalf of those people. What about the unreached people groups who nobody knows about? There are people praying night and day in houses, uh, pr houses of prayer throughout the world for the unsaved, for the unreached. And so I think God in his graciousness will accept these blanket prayer requests. We don't know necessarily people by name, but there are people who are, are laboring actually in prayer for the sake of the world. And what about prayer being a work? Well, again, God invites us into this. God's desire is for us to partner with him in the salvation of the world. That's part of what he has chosen on behalf of the bride is that that would be our, our role, that we would get to partner with God 
through prayer, through the labor of prayer, in order to see people saved. What I want for us uh, to take away from this chapter, and just as an impractical application for us, is um, to identify a trigger in our life that will remind us to pray for the lost specifically. Probably all of you in this room drive a car. Um, and you probably drive that every day. You might not, but um, I was just trying to think of, well, what is something that all of us engage in every day? And, and I, would, I would venture to guess that that would probably be a car, driving a car. So here's my suggestion to us. My suggestion to us is that we would use our ignition or the key. Okay, whether you have a push start car or a key start, um, that we would use that as a trigger to pray that um, every time we get in our car and we turn on our car, we'd be reminded to pray for the lost. And allow, or, and if that's not a good one for you, if you're like, that's not going to work, I don't drive my car very often or I carpool or whatever, then find something else, something that you interact with daily that when you look at it, it's going to be a trigger to remind you every single day to begin to pray for the, the lost ones in this world, whether it's somebody in your family, a neighbor, a, a friend maybe from years and years ago who you just don't know uh, if they ever made a decision to follow Jesus, um, or if it's some of these blanket prayer requests that just, God, there are people in this world who we haven't yet reached who don't know about Jesus. Would you save them? Would you send somebody to them? Would you make us aware of their presence on the earth and begin to partner with God in that way, laboring with with the Spirit and the salvation of others, okay? Um, I'm going to welcome up Pastor Phil again, and we are going to do a quick Q&A. We've got like five minutes. If you have to leave, uh, go for it. But if you have questions, we want to take those. Yeah, Jack. Well, what I think that what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2, he's talking about uh, a salvific faith, um, which would be different than, and I, I think I know where you're going to go with this argument too, but um, what I would say is different than like the gift of faith, of trusting or of believing for something big from God. Um, obviously, salvation's huge. It's the biggest miracle. But, but I think that that's what he's getting at is, okay, well, even faith comes through the Spirit. That's a Yes, it's a, it's a gift, but it's something that uh, is given unto us. Um, as opposed to maybe, maybe exercising a gift of faith, uh, being a, a, a gift that, a faith that trusts or that believes. Um, I, so I, I would just make probably a distinction there because I think what Paul's getting at, and I'll let Pastor Phil comment on that too, but is more of the salvific faith in that passage. I, I was just thinking about Ephesians 2.10 because we like 8 and 9. 10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're supposed to do good works. And what of them is believe, pray, fight for things that matter. See, I took the easy route. Just quote a scripture. <laughs>
a buddy of mine uh, who's an evangelist and traveled with Billy Graham back in the early days, um, he came and he, uh, he spoke at our church one time and he, he said, uh, I'll never forget one time at one of the tent crusades with Billy Graham where he got done and afterwards they couldn't find him and he was weeping in his room. And they said, why are you weeping? He said, if I would have prayed more, more would have been saved. That don't convict you? Nothing does. <laughs> <laughs> I think deadline there is probably death. Yeah, their their individual death. Because if somebody dies apart from Christ, apart from knowing Christ, yeah, even if Christ hasn't yet returned, yeah. There's a, there's an interesting study you can do. There's a a word if you use a King James. There's a word they used to use called vexed, v e x. All right, you remember that word, and. Um, it talked about a, someone's spirit being vexed. And this is just an interesting thing because I, I agree with what Nathan just said, but at the same time, um, is it possible that I can so vex, so damage my spirit that it's become completely insensitive to the spirit of God? And, and I think that that warning is found in scriptures you know, I don't want to believe it. I like the other version, you know, because I have seen people who denied Christ on their deathbed. But at the same time, you've seen people that have been so, you know, at, you know, even up to death, just cursing God and something happened. Something happened there that was pretty tragic. So um, we've got 60 seconds. Jack, you got it. Yeah, Hebrews says, you know, it's appointed unto all men to die once, you know, and then the judgment. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> Unless you're an Indian, you know, in, you know, Hindu, then you can point it to men to die again and again and again and again, right? Okay, hey, uh, I think we need to quit because uh, I don't want to, I want to quit but while you're still alive. And, you know, and it's 9 o'clock, you've endured a lot. But um, good book, huh? Good book, good book. So I'm excited about it. You're, you love me more now that I did this one and not the spiritual man. Trust me, trust me, you love me much more, okay? Uh, hey, let's just close in prayer. Can we do that? And uh, if you guys, anybody can hang around and stack up some tables and chairs, that would be awesome. Thank you so much, okay? Uh, Father, right now we'd be remiss if we just didn't pray for the harvest around us. So we just want to pray, God, that you will send out laborers into your harvest, that we will reap souls for Jesus. God, we want to see people saved by the thousands and by the hundred thousands. God, we're tired of seeing people saved by the dozens. God, we're ready, we're ready to see a massive harvest of souls. So God, may we be people who pray and really do believe 
that our prayers bring people into the kingdom. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, have a good week, huh?